0: I usually start out when I go somewhere for the first time with something you probably have heard a number of times whenever controversial programming is about to air. And the disclaimer goes something like this, that the views and the opinions that you are about to hear are not necessarily those of the management. So I said it don't hold him accountable. (laughs) I plan on talking this morning until I finally say something. My text is found in the Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 4, and you can go ahead and find the text, and I'll join you shortly. I felt it appropriate, based on the discussion that John and I have had, to talk to you about a topic that I am entitling apocalyptic worship. Doesn't that sound wonderful? It just kind of rolls. Let's say it together. Apocalyptic worship. Uh, I talk to so many people almost every week and interview people on Instagram two, three, four times a week. And the gnawing question that always seems to be present, it is the proverbial elephant in the room that just will not be ignored, is where is all this heading? And I'm sure that resonates with all of you. What are things going to look like in the aftermath. Now, make sure that you don't dial down too low with those questions because I am not a person that is always obsessing over problems. I'm just not. I I am concerned, but I refuse to be consumed. And I don't mean for that to sound trite. I, I am deeply concerned with what is going on in our world right now, but I'm not consumed by it. And you will understand the reason for that gravitas in just a few minutes. I mean, how do we distinguish our present state from our ultimate fate? Well, See, while we're in the middle of a crisis, our unbelief always insists on total knowing. The ego has an insatiable appetite for certainty. And I'll be so bold to tell you, as one man said, that I don't believe that the opposite of faith is doubt. I think the opposite of faith is certitude. It's not the things that we don't know that give us trouble as much as the things that we're certain of that just aren't true. So, it's in the middles that extremes clash, where ambiguity restlessly rules. And I've come to the place, after 42 years of doing this, to believing that when we come to the end of what we know, that's where we really find God. We're simply not comfortable with mystery. We're not comfortable with disorientation. But there's a pattern that is not only true in the broader culture, but has also been true of those who who are followers of Jesus. We start out with a certain orientation. And that orientation inevitably leads us to a disorientation in order to lead us to a reorientation. Now, I wish I had time to just stay right there and talk to you about that. Others, I think it's Walter Brueggemann that puts it this way. He said it starts out with order, and you see this even in the Scripture from the opening of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, till you culminate in Revelation chapter 22. You see, it starts out in a certain order, goes into disorder so that it can be reordered. Is that making sense to you? But all of this ambiguity that seems to be surrounding us right now is unnerving. I don't mean for this to sound pessimistic, but sometimes good things have to fall apart so that other things can come together. It's just that simple. And I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes I'm drowning in a tsunami of misinformation. And I've been saying this for a long time, even before the pandemic. One of the deep concerns I have in the role that I play is that the church, it seems to be, to me, is being discipled far more by the media than it is by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for your underwhelming response. (laughs) And as we're drowning in this tsunami of misinformation, the thing that makes it even worse, the dilemma is that wisdom is being cut in half at the same time. If we have ever need wisdom and discernment, we need it now. There are many different ways to define wisdom. My definition is wisdom is learning not to say, why is this happening, but what is it saying to me? Otherwise, we just continue to go through things. Go through things. I I was in Hebrews the other day, the, the 11th chapter, and we all know about these heroes and heroines of faith and all that they did by faith and with their faith. But the closing verses make it clear to us that we are not even worthy. How convicting is this? We're not even worthy that we should hear the names of those who endured by faith. And their outcome didn't appear as being as glorious as all the patriarchs. Some things we have to go through. I can tell you're really excited about that. It, It does get better. When will we learn that what we focus on, this is a word that you and I discussed yesterday about refocusing, reset. When will we learn that what we focus on will always determine what we miss? We live in a culture that is constantly creating diversions, that is creating distractions. When you lay down tonight to go to sleep, and now I'm probably going to sound like I'm getting way out in the weeds here and I'm some kind of kooky conspiracy theorist. (laughs) But when you lay down tonight, the news cycle will begin to be scripted so that when you wake up in the morning, they determine what you are supposed to pay attention to. Now we're put in the position like never before that we are either going to see what we believe or believe what we see. And kingdom people, they see what they believe. They don't believe everything they see. I mean, Paul would say it in this way. He says, for we look not to the things which are seen but to the things which are unseen for the things which are seen are temporal or subject to change. They're always changing, aren't they? In the words of John Mayer, they own all the news so they can bend it all they want. And I'm sure that many of you, I mean, you know, this is... Hi, good to meet you. (laughs) Uh, You know, this is your first time seeing me, and you don't realize, none of us do, that there is no such thing as unbiased thought you bring every old experience into every new experience subconsciously at a subliminal level you are already making assessments about me and you don't know me isn't isn't it strange how the mind works now I want to get to this passage because it's quite lengthy but I just felt like I needed to set some context because I believe that all forms of fear, all forms of fear, are caused by too much future and not enough presence. And I don't mean for this to sound like I'm scolding you because, you know, sometimes this, your phone probably does the same thing. It's really smart very smart. It tells me how much screen time I've had this week. And sometimes when that comes up, I'm extremely convicted. Because like everybody else in this culture, I suffer from FOMO. The fear of missing out, right? But isn't it true that technology has so overstimulated it? us until it makes it almost impossible for us to be fully present. Now, in John, I told you, I mean in Revelation, I told you I was going to talk to you about apocalyptic worship, and now it's going to make sense to you in the next few minutes. The word apocalyptic is probably the most misused and abused word in popular culture. When you hear the apocalypse, what do most people think? I mean, there are movies that bear that name. And there is this foreboding sense of something that is ominous out there on the horizon that is lurking. And that's how we have defined the word apocalypse. And that's very unfortunate because that's not what it means at all. That's not what it means at all. Now, I'm not in denial and I'm not saying that it does not in some way relate to something cataclysmic or something that is critical in nature but that's not what it means and I see some of you nodding so you're already ahead of the learning curve but I don't want to assume anything because I know assumption is the lowest form of knowledge it has no witness or evidence whatsoever so I'm just going to go ahead and speak in terms of you not being really familiar with the etymology of this word of the origin of this word the word apocalypso means to unveil or to disclose. It means to take something that has been concealed and reveal it. I've been saying this for years, but I think it fits perfectly right here. How are we doing so far? Okay. I'm working at it. I'm just a little rusty, all right? It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the honor of kings to search that matter out, Proverbs chapter 25, verses 1 and 2. And so this is what I was about to say before you interrupted me, is that God does not conceal anything from us, but he does conceal it for us. And when, as the Buddhists say, that's troubling to some people when I say that, but I do it for shock value. I mean, some of you look like I threw a hairdryer in your bathwater when I said that. When the student is ready, the teacher will appear. How many times have you mumbled to yourself, Why on earth didn't I learn that 20 years ago? You weren't ready. You weren't ready. I've been saying that even just in the last five years. I wish I'd learned that 50 years ago. So the word apocalypse means to disclose, to reveal, to uncover that it has a totally different connotation than something that is cataclysmic in nature. Now, before I read Revelation chapter four, I told you I'd join you shortly. Before I read Revelation chapter four, I need to give you some context. John, this aging apostle who gives us the revelation as well as these postcard epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, the shorter, and the Gospel of John. He has been exiled to the Isle of Patmos, which in my perspective is like the first century Alcatraz. He's been sent to this rock strewn Island, and the reason why that he was exiled there is because they attempted to kill him, and he wouldn't die. He was rather obstinate. Josephus said they tried to boil him in oil, and he just wouldn't boil. So this aging apostle, they think maybe we'll send him out there, and he'll die of heat stroke. With or maybe he'll be killed by one of these other incorrigible uh, career criminals that we have sent there. Now, back across the sea are churches that he has developed rapport and relationship with them. There's seven of them to be exact. Now, I don't want you to think that I came here to wreak havoc on your eschatology or your views of end times, So let me say this, if I may, so that it may in some way disarm you a little. Hmm. I think it's important for us to understand the manifold wisdom of God. In other words, God's wisdom has many different facets. If I put it in the rabbinical uh, uh, language, they would say that the Torah itself has 70 different faces, which means it has at least 70 different perspectives. When Paul says that the wisdom of God is the manifold or it's really the many-faceted wisdom of God. If you have a diamond, a really good one, it has up to 57 different facets. So don't take the book of Revelation and box it in. Don't truncate it with your ideas, your preconceived ideas. Understand that one of the fundamental ways of understanding Scripture, interpreting Scripture, is that we have to first understand what it meant to them before we can understand what it meant to us. Who was it written to? You with me so far? So John is out there on this God-forsaken island, and he is removed across the sea are these seven churches that are referenced there. And the climate, you can find definite parallels in because the Roman Empire was a world superpower. It had become this massive juggernaut that was just gobbling up nations all around them. Of course, Christianity was under intense persecution, bloodthirsty Caesars like Nero and Diocletian. You can read about this in the works of Josephus and other complementary works. They were committing atrocities that are just beyond our imagination against Christians. And the odd thing about it, though, is the more intense the persecution became, the more they thrived. Josephus describes the maniacal acts of Nero and the things that he would do, such as throwing the Christians to lions or putting them on these huge razors and causing them to slide down, severing them in half. I could go on and on. I will reference one more. I think it's important to you understanding what we're going for here. Remember when Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he's talking about all these things that we can do, but if we do them without love, it profits nothing? I I just wondered, is everybody following me on that? You know when he says, though I give my body to be burned? What was he talking about? Well, Nero, this insane emperor, had this idea... That he was going to take Christians and cover them in flammable material and tie them to post in his gardens, to light his gardens at night. So when he says, though I give my body to be burned, but we can verify this in history, that Nero lost his mind. And the reason why he lost his mind was directly tied to him mutilating and burning these Christians to death. Because what would happen, he expected for them to scream in horrific pain. But he was hearing them singing and speaking in a language that he had never heard before. As they are burning at the stake, they are singing in the Spirit. And it drove him mad. measuring my words here because i feel myself drifting into giving elucidating even more about this but you get the picture don't you i hope you do and so john one day i envisioned in revelation chapter one he says he was in the spirit on the lord's day it doesn't necessarily mean that he was feeling the holy spirit on sunday It says he was in the spirit because every day is the Lord's day, not just this day. He is in the spirit, more accurately, he is in the spirit of the day. And see, that should speak volumes to us. We should be in the spirit of the day of the Lord, rather in the spirit of the age. He can only imagine what is happening to his friends in those churches what they must be going through and here he is vastly separated from them and I envision him if you allow me a little liberty here you do have an imagination don't you? you have permission to use it so that's the problem with so much Bible reading that it's, it's so unimaginative and so I see John can I come down there is it alright to come down there alright I see John maybe walking out to the shoreline, and he's standing there, and the ocean is lapping up on his feet. The sea is lapping up on his feet, and he can feel the sand beneath his feet as he begins to sink a little bit. You know the sensation? And he's glinting out across the water, wondering about his friends. And suddenly, The heavens roll back like a scroll, as the hymn writer says. They roll back like a scroll. And like a cosmic opera, he has played out for him everything that would be transcribed that makes up the book of Revelation, chapter 1 to 22. And he sees it from the beginning to the end, and everything begins to make sense to him then. And he opens this wonderful book that is rich with imagery and symbolism. And that's one of the problems that people have with the book of Revelation. They're intimidated by it or they avoid it because they don't understand the imagery that is there. They don't understand that the majority of the imagery that he uses is found in the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is one of those mystical books, isn't it? See, that's the problem with us. We don't understand how to think mystically. We don't understand that the authors of Scripture were mystical in nature. They thought in symbols, not in concrete ways like you do or like you think you're limited to do. See, what's been going on right now is so restrictive and so disruptive that it is robbing us of our imagination to imagine A future that has hope. And so he sees it just as it plays out in front of him. As I said, like a cosmic opera. And as it's transcribed. This is probably the poorest Greek in all of the New Testament. And there's a reason for that. Because if it had not been so cryptic, then the Caesars would have understood the message. If the princes of this world had known, Paul said, if the princes of this world had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So much of what God does is cryptic in nature, it is subversive in nature. Yet we find ourselves obsessing and fixating on what is going on in the deep state. What is going on behind the scenes? And as a result, we're oblivious that God is working even more cryptically than that. Eye is not seen, ear is not heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man what God hath in store for those that love him. But he has revealed it by his spirit. So he starts out and he says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the revelation of the Antichrist. Not the revelation of the end of the world. Not the revelation of us experiencing unspeakable things. No, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be so particular to remind you, it's not the revelations, it's the revelation it's the unveiling the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And the old King James, which I was taught growing up, which I've come to understand is probably the worst translation available to us today. Don't tempt me, I don't need to go there. We thought Elizabethan English made it, you know, more credible. The thou's and the thus and the saith. Right? But I do like this one. In the first three verses, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was sent and signified, signified. Vines dictionary will tell you that means to be sent in signs and symbols. See, we live in a semiotic age right now where we need to learn how to read. See, the whole culture runs on soundtrack and symbols. The whole culture does. You know, you learned how to navigate your phone, didn't you, when your homepage comes up and has all those icons because you know if you tap certain ones, it opens up a whole field of understanding to you. And if we learn the icons of the revelation in the same way, it will open up to us an understanding that we never imagined. And he calls himself a servant. I've got to condense this. He calls himself a servant, not just any common servant, not just some house slave, but a bond slave. And the reason why he chose that endearing term You remember, he is the one who was always referred to as the apostle or the disciple whom Jesus loved. He calls himself that nine different times. I used to think that was false humility until I began to understand it was not false humility in him referring to himself in third person. He was actually letting us know that he was the one that had a deeper revelation of the heart of the Father. And the reason being is he always had his head on the breast of Jesus And he would say in his gospel in John chapter 1 that Jesus came from the bosom of the Father. So he decided, I'm not going to understand him just by listening to the profundity of his teaching. I have to hear what's resonating at a heart level. But what does that have to do with being a servant? Because he is borrowing from the imagery of the Old Testament, which was the bond slave. You know, remember the bond slave? The bond slave is someone that was an indentured servant because they had a debt they could not pay. And so that person and their entire family was taken into servitude to the person that they were indebted to. But in the economy that God had designed, after six years, they could be released from that debt. But quite often, something that would happen that was somewhat of a phenomenon, even Though this person was a slave, paying off a debt, he fell so much in love with his benevolent master that he decided, "I don't want to leave this house." So he had the option of becoming a bond slave. And the process and the procedure was this: is that he was taken to the door of the master's house, and his ear was pierced, and a silver ring was put in his ear, indicating to everyone that saw him that this man has chosen to be a slave of love for the rest of his life. What does that have to do with John and why does he refer to himself in that way? Because Jesus said that he was the door. See the imagery? And John, for all those years, had laid his ear against the door, which is Jesus, long enough that it pierced his ear with an understanding of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's why he would repeat again and again, almost ad nauseum to some of us, in Revelation 1, one through three he that hath an ear not ears he that hath an ear let him hear what the spirit is saying to the church he made it clear this is the revelation of Jesus Christ but what about all those other frightening images in there it's because again we come with biased thinking And we try to superimpose, get this word, we try to superimpose the imagery of 21st century culture on 1st century culture. This is an egregious mistake. I finally got to my text. (laughs) Be glad my wife's not here, she'd be doing she has to listen to me chapter 4 verse 1 and I'm reading <clears throat> from the ESV and after this I look and behold a door standing open in heaven may I pause here long enough to say and I am by no ways in no ways mitigating your understanding of heaven but heaven is not up there out there somewhere now God relates to us because we're finite beings in terms of those things, directions. But heaven is a dimension more than it is a direction, because you will hear Him say that He hears this voice say, "Come up." Right? I mean, you you do understand, don't you, that the angels of the Lord encamp round about them that fear Him. Do you believe that those angels come from some distant planet in order to get to you? When Jesus is in his resurrection body, he's appearing and disappearing at the speed of thought, at the speed of thought. Once he'll be up in Galilee, now he's back down in Jerusalem. Now he's back up in Galilee. Now he's walking on a road to Emmaus. And what is he doing? He's simply stepping through this very thin membrane we call reality. He's stepping through it and then back out of it. He's stepping from eternity into time, back into eternity, back into time. So God is not up there, out there. The myth of separation is, is, was the original lie that was sold to the human race in the book of Genesis to begin with. The myth of separation. <laughs> you know, I, I was raised in a very legalistic culture that was always threatening me with the fear of backsliding does that sound familiar to anybody anybody yes i see those hands they weren't threatening me with the you know missing the evacuation and they were threatening me with hell and then one day i discover it's the goodness of god that leads men to repentance not terrorizing them And so one day I was, you know, I was reading the ruminating psalm of David. What is it, 139? I mean, he's just sitting there ruminating, and he says, you know what? You know my thoughts before I think them. Matter of fact, you know when I'm going to stand up and when I'm going to sit down. Don't you love that? You know... I think if I were like Mercury, he didn't say Mercury, but you know, mythology was alive and well in that time, but I I think I was like Mercury and I grew wings and I just flew to the uttermost parts of the sea because the earth is flat and I'll fall off, right? (laughs) You're going to be there. And this is really troubling for a lot of people, especially those who are constantly pounding penal, uh, penal substitution and eternal conscious torment. He said, though I make my bed in hell, you're there. So what's that got to do with back, backsliding, being threatened you know, with the propensity of backsliding? When I read that, I thought, you know what? The pervasive omnipresence of God, the relentless pursuing of God, I've never been pursuing him. He's always pursued me. And I thought, well, if I were to turn my back on God, I'd still be facing Him. (laughs) The unconditional, inescapable, relentless love of God. So when he said he saw a door standing open in heaven, don't think up there, out there somewhere. Understand that doors always speak of liminal spaces. And what I mean by liminal spaces, it has to do with thresholds. I mean, you pass over thresholds every day and you don't even pay any attention to it. But it's going into a new space. Say new space. See, things are falling apart so that new things can come together. We are, (laughs) listen, we're not on the edge of a precipice. No, we're on a threshold into a new space, into a place that we've never known before. Yes. Wow, that's enthusiastic. I see it. The first voice he heard was like that speaking to me as a trumpet. And a trumpet always is scripture is a connection with a prophetic voice. If we go back to Numbers chapter 10, there were, there were trumpets that were fashioned specifically that gave certain sounds had a certain intonation that would alert everybody in the encampment of Israel that either the presence of God was moving, the cloud was moving or it was time for the camp to move or they were calling for the council of elders. Now so why is that important now? Because Paul when he's talking about the order of language use and tongues in 1 Corinthians he says that if a trumpet gives an uncertain sound how can you prepare for battle? Ladies and gentlemen, all the voices that we're hearing right now, and there are many voices in the world, Paul says, and none of them without signification. All the voices that we're hearing right now are maddening. The cacophony of confusion that is out there right now is just unimaginable, isn't it? And it's creating more and more and more uncertainty. But if we hear this prophetic voice that spoke to him that I believe is doing his best to speak to us now, he's going to say, What's the next words come up here? The way we see things are not the way they are. It's just the way you see them. And it's not until you change the way you see things that the things you see will begin to change. And you can't change the way you see things until you get a different perspective. Most of the things in my life that I have deemed to be problems were not problems at all. It was the way I saw the problem that was the real problem. You still with me? Yes. <clears throat> Come up here and I will show you what is, must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven. Wow. Wow. What do you imagine this throne to be like? It's probably not at all what you think it's like. Because the imagery of a throne finds its first reference all the way back in the Exodus. This ex, this this was not an ornate throne, a high-backed chair, button-tuck chair. Some of the younger people don't know what is a button-tuck chair. Come on, help me here. You know what a button-tuck chair is. You know velvety and you know, it's ivory. You know, that was Solomon's throne. It was ornate to say the least. You're not going to get this at Bedcock. You know, you... are <laughs> rooms to go. But the throne was this little three by four box that was gold-plated and it had... Uh, a gold top on it that was called the mercy seat and the reason why the mercy seat was there I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant if you don't know anything about it in the Bible you've probably seen Indiana Jones right So you, know, okay you, that's pretty close right so you understand how this is evoking all this imagery in the minds of his readers because when you say throne and when they think throne it's two different things come on Come on come on out. The water's really good out here right now. <laughs> so I'm talking about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a three-by-four box, and it's overlaid with gold. And it's got a, this gold. It, it weighs over 100 pounds, the mercy seat that sits on top. And coming up out of it, it's made of one piece of gold. And when coming up out of it are two cherubims that we have very little understanding of, and they are face to face and between the faces of the cherubim between the faces of the cherubim the glory of God did manifest and filtering up through that tent and like a mushroom cloud that went over 15 miles over the entire encampment of Israel was the canopy that kept them by day and night a cloud of fire by night and a pillar of fire by day that was the throne it was right there what you say You lost me. Okay, I'll just put it to you this way. We're talking about being in the same position of the presence of God, because this was the presence of God. God said, I would speak to you from between the wings of the cherubim. I'm going to take a greater risk right here and tell you most of the things that we do in worship does not even closely resemble the model that you have in the in the old testament because they didn't sing to people on a platform they sang to one another isaiah's vision in the year that king uzziah died he saw the lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and he saw these seraphims you know they got six wings these dudes do and they listen what are they doing what are they doing what you were doing earlier, holy, 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 the whole earth is filled with His glory, what we're going to read about here in Revelation chapter 4 in a minute. But they weren't just bellowing it out into the atmosphere. They were crying one to another. You ready, to volley, Huh? Ready to do an antiphonal? Are you? He's holy. He's holy. He, see, there's where the presence of God manifests Himself. Yeah. Maybe what we ought to do to close this out is that we ought to just sing. You know, let the team come up here and don't look at them. Let's look at one another and say, He's holy. He's holy. Now I feel like a Pentecostal. The whole earth is filled with his glory. I spared you. That's the way I used to preach. I said he's holy you were trying to remember from First Thessalonians chapter 4 that I preached on in Atlanta. Jesus' culture was this, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout and the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God shall sound. The dead in Christ shall rise, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And see, what we've done is we've pushed that into the future too, but we don't understand in the original language it says this, that he will not just descend with a shout, he will descend in the The shout. The kind of shout, the word here that is used to split the ear, to unveil, to split the veil. I gotta get back up here. (laughs) You can tell I've been in the stall too long. And he was seated. On the throne which means he you know the sovereignty of God to me is very simply that he runs over all in all and through all and I don't care what the economy is doing I don't care what deep state is doing I don't care who all these nefarious groups are doing it's not that I'm indifferent but if I believe if I am a believer I've had people messaging me you know about what about the mark of the beast what about this what about that And I want to say come on you know pump your brakes here Do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead victorious over death, hell, and the grave? If you don't, I don't have anything to talk to you about. He has the keys of death, hell, and the grave. God's not waiting, you know, for this to see how it's going to turn out. No, Isaiah said he declared the end from the beginning. Think about that. He's not just letting it unfold. See, the problem with us is that we have to have beginnings that look to a certain end. But God doesn't start things to finish them. He finishes them and he starts them. That's why he said he is the alpha and the omega. doesn't mean he's he's the first and the last. No, at the same time. Now, when you fully understand that, let me know. So he describes in great detail here that I certainly have time restraints that I can't get into. But there's one striking image that he uses here when he sees the throne. He sees around it a rainbow. (laughs) You know, you don't have to be a scholar to understand what that's all about. We have to understand that this is God's original manifestation of his covenant of grace in Genesis chapter 6 that he would not allow the earth to be destroyed again see that's what apocalyptic worship is all about it it is not just about us somehow appeasing this cosmic egomaniac see I get in trouble with that because a lot of worship services, I sense that people are feeling more and more and more and more inferior, when really the purpose of worth, worship, which the old English word is worth worth. The whole purpose of worship is to return you to the consciousness that you lost when Adam yeah. believed the lie that he was not made in God's exact image and likeness because the first time that you will ever see anything that reflects worship is when God breathes into this lifeless mole called Adam and he blinks his eyes for the first time. (gasps) He takes his first breath and his heart thuds for the first time and blood rushes to the extremities of his body. And when he opens his eyes, God is stooped over him god is adoring him so adoration didn't begin with you it began with god any more than you adored your parents first no your parents who made you in their image adored you first that's the point of worship is to restore the consciousness that has been corrupted, the virus that was unleashed because all of us are born brain damaged with a form of amnesia. We don't really fully know who we are, and I'm convinced that what we do is we spend all of our lives on this human journey trying to rediscover who we were before we became who we thought, think we are. That's the only reason God invited, introduced himself to you in the beginning is because he wanted to introduce the you that he knew you to be before you became the you that you think you are. Thomas Merton would talk about the distinction between the false self and the true self. And most of us, unfortunately, including myself, have learned to live as imposters our entire life. But when you have a real worship experience, because one of the many words for worship means to kiss towards, and the first kiss you ever have take place in the Scripture is not between a man and a woman. It is between the Father and the one created in His image. He. <laughs> Inflated his lungs That's where the first kiss took place And the first breath that was ever taken on the planet Was not by a human being But the first breath that was ever taken on the planet Was by unconditional love Because God is love And that's why we return to first love Not the first love that you experience When you felt conviction No, first love predates you First love goes all the way back To God's original intention in the Genesis Boy, you're a good bunch because I hadn't had this much pulled out of me in a long time. I'll go so far to say too that even, even an atheist, think about this, even an atheist that says there is no God does it by the breath of God. I don't have time here to talk about the four and twenty elders and the thrones and (laughs) and the flashes of lightning and the rumblings and the peals of thunder and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire which are the seven spirits of God he's reminiscing on Isaiah chapter 11 the seven spirits of God seven is that number of perfection that if we can enter into this space that he is describing here, which is essentially an apocalyptic worship service in the context of crisis. Remember where he's at and remember what the Christians are going through and they step through that illusion into this, which is reality. living creatures faces like lions and an ox and a man and an eagle such wonderful symbols that uh, are concealed in the Old Testament that are waiting to be revealed to us and here's where we get to it what do they do what is, what, what is the response once he steps through that door and he goes up above it all which you are there anyway, right? Ephesians chapter 2 says, and you were in dead in trespasses and sin, hath he quickened and made to sit. Not going to make you sit, but has made you to sit with him in heavenly places. See, he wants you to, see, (laughs) the mercy seat, remember the mercy seat I described, you know, in a cursory way? The mercy seat, it's a love seat. It's only built for two. And he's trying to get you in that seat with him. And he, and see, and that's the reason why he made that mercy seat so heavy because just beneath the mercy seat were the demands of the law, but the law can't get to you because the kabod, the glory of God, was weighty enough to keep it from getting to you. The spirit of this age is the spirit of heaviness, isn't it? And he's inviting you. He's inviting me. He's inviting all of us to come up, to step over that liminal space and to come up into this perspective and begin to see as he sees and to understand that there no matter how dark or gloomy it looks right now that there is a rainbow when you get on the right side of the light yeah. yes. Come on. see if you're not on the right side of it you can't see it can you yeah. the covenant of grace and mercy holy holy why three Maybe I'll talk about that another time. Holy, <laughs> holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures gave glory and honor and thanks to him who were seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty and four elders fell down before him who is seated <clears throat> on the throne. <coughs> excuse me, to worship him who lives forever and ever, to cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord God, to receive glory, honor, and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Which just leads us, go ahead and stand. Tiff, come on up here with your team and rescue me. (laughs) Because this segues right into chapter 5 when they see this scroll that is written on both sides and this is not some book big book that God has in heaven that has every single thing that you've done wrong this is an image that they're very familiar with because quite often when inheritance were lost generational wealth generational inheritance were lost in that economy god had provided a means by which it wouldn't be totally lost it wouldn't be so tragic that this family that had cum- accumulated all this wealth that it would be totally lost irretrievable so they had a scroll that listed all their assets and it was sealed down through the generations until there was someone that emerged in that bloodline. Are you tracking with me? Someone that emerged in that bloodline that had the wherewithal, that was worthy. That's that's, that's why the worthy, 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 holy, 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 somebody that was worthy to buy the farm out of foreclosure. Adam sold the farm. Sold us out. But God saw to it that our inheritance wouldn't be lost. And when we're looking around, who is going to get us out of this? Who's going to get us out of this impending depression, recession? Who's going to get us out? He's already got us out of it. And if there's anything that he's trying to teach us right now, as far as I'm concerned, have I gone way over time? Okay. A little late to ask now, huh? (laughs) for me personally one of the greatest revelations I've had just in the last couple of years two things has to do with the myth of separation and the myth of scarcity because we're being conditioned that there's scarcity and scarcity doesn't exist never has now men manipulate systems But if we can lean into this truth, you understand now why I call this apocalyptic worship? (laughs) I think that's what we ought to do. Uh, Am I in trouble? (laughs) I've been there before. (laughs) You guys have been so precious. Father, sometimes all it takes is a little adjustment in our perspective. As with John, or even back with Moses, Moses who had been in that wilderness, that, the blistering sands of the Sinai for 40 years. And then one day, he saw a bush that was burning, that was not consumed. My question is, Lord, had he not seen it several times and ignored the phenomenon? because God had hidden himself in plain sight. And when he turned aside and he took off his shoes, I think that's what you're asking us to do. Look back here at Timothy, uh, Tiffany, barefoot, to take off our shoes. What does that mean? If you want to do that, that's fine. That doesn't weird me out. But it has more to do with not just you taking off your physical shoes, but that which you have become comfortable with that supports you. And has enabled you to navigate in the way that you have in the past. And I promise you, there is no going back to the way things were. You say, well, we got some semblance of it here this morning. No, you're mistaken. We're not going back to the way things were. Because God, what God wants to do, to borrow a well-worn passage in Isaiah, He wants to make all things new. He wants to do a new thing. God doesn't make new things. He makes all things new. So Lord, we lift our hands this morning. And as the scripture says, we do so without wrath or doubting. Because there's some people here been pretty angry about what's going on in the world. Can you confess that? I mean, I've been pissed off. I haven't just been angry. Can I say that? I just did, didn't I? It's in the Bible. Ha <laughs> ha. I have and I've I've had my bouts with doubt so I lift up my hands without wrath or doubt right as I do that right now I believe I believe that you are going to bring such a seismic shift in my soul that when I walk out of the threshold of the gate, that I will walk out barefoot. Because, hey, the priest, whenever he came into the presence of the Lord on the Day of Atonement, he always had to go in there barefoot. He's clothed from head to ankle, but he had to go in barefoot. You ready to start walking barefoot into a new place in God? Hallelujah.